Tony Domino here, and welcome to another edition of the Legal Entrepreneurs Podcast. Here at the Legal Entrepreneurs Organization, we cater to law students and professionals interested in the business of law, in starting their own practice, or in simply selling the best version of themselves. My guest today is Alex Coe. She's the founder of Insight Legal, a boutique business law firm located in Toronto's financial district. Alex will be speaking about her path from a business associate with a firm to eventually starting her own firm. She'll also be giving her tips on networking, advice for law students pondering what area of law they want to specialize in, and the tips and traps for those interested in practicing IP law. We also talk about why the competitive environment found in law schools may actually be an obstacle to building networks and being a legal entrepreneur. Alex joins me now. Alex Coe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Alex, you're the founder of Insight Legal. Uh, it's a Toronto business law firm located in the financial district. Let's start off with your firm, what it does, and the type of clients it helps. Yeah, uh, Insight Legal is a business firm. We work a lot with startups and small to medium sized businesses, helping them with anything from starting their business and helping them figure out which business vehicle they'd like to use to operate their business, and then moving on to their operational needs depending on which stage they're in. So a lot of startups usually tend to go through reorganizations once they start to make money, um, possibly commercial leases when they're expanding. And then on the end of a lifespan of a business, uh, we help with purchases and sales and dissolutions of companies. Interesting. Okay. Well, part of our goal here at Leo is to help educate and inspire those law students who are interested in entrepreneurship or pursuing that in their legal career path. Could you talk a little bit about your background and what inspired you to start your own law firm? Sure. When I was in law school, I took mostly business-related courses, and I ended up articling at a law firm as a business associate, but the law firm itself specialized in climate change and environmental issues. So I did the business work, but a lot of the time, the assets that we were dealing with had something to do with renewable energy, and so I got a, a background in that as well. About a few years into my career with that law firm, I was hired back there as an associate. I decided to leave, and I had a classmate of mine that proposed that we start a law firm together instead of me applying for other jobs. And so that's what I did. didn't really apply for jobs, just started a firm together with a former business partner. I took over the firm about a year ago and have been on my own practicing since then. Oh, wow. Okay, so it hasn't been that long since you were in law school then. <laughs> I guess, well, no, that, I guess you weren't that far out of law school when you went into kind of going on your own. You, in my own practice. You it's not as if you were like in a law firm for 10 years or something. No. You kind of. Mm -hmm. I worked for two years uh, on top of articling and then started the partnership. Okay. Oh. So <clears throat> I guess that leads into my next question, which um, it's no secret that, you know, starting your own business even as a highly educated professional as yourself can be very difficult and risky. I mean, especially for someone like, you know, a three-year call uh, or like, you know, an early call. So uh, what are the obstacles that you face starting your firm and what aspects continue to be a challenge? Um, one which a non-entrepreneur would not experience. Uh, to be honest, probably the biggest 
hurdle in starting your own firm is you don't realize how much admin work it takes okay. and how much time it takes as well. So you not only have to go get clients, do the work for those clients, but you also have to manage this entity that has to file taxes and that has to report to the law society. And mm. the law society has certain file management requirements and especially if you have money going through your trust account and you have to make sure that all the financial side is accounted for. So the admin stuff probably takes about a third of your time, which is very time consuming considering that you still have to do legal work for your clients. So I'd say that was a challenge and it still is just trying to make sure that all the admin stuff is taken care of because we're such a highly regulated industry and making sure that you do everything by law society's books. Um, and then you're not just a lawyer, you have to be a business manager, which is a different type of mentality. In general, you have to be more prone to take risks if you're going to be a business owner, but we as lawyers are taught to be very mm -hmm. risk averse. So right. it's a little bit contradictory in what your background is and what you're actually doing. Okay. Um, I guess you sort of learn best by osmosis. <laughs> yeah. Take the risk and, you know, jump in and try your best with what you have. Mm -hmm. In, in terms of a financial risk, realistically, it's not. As lawyers, we need a computer and we need a desk to work on. And as long as you have what you have, then that there's not as much investment. You don't have to buy inventory in order to be able to do what it is that you do. In terms of the professional risk, you just have to really make sure that you're diligent in the legal work that you do. And that just requires time and not just... To be honest with you, I still read... CLEs on documents that I may have written many, many times just to make sure has the law changed, did I forget certain aspects of it just to refresh your memory before you finalize any kind of document and you just want to make sure that you don't get sloppy yeah. as you move forward. Yeah, so a lot of moving parts, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, I guess if you're an employee, you, didn't, you wouldn't have to worry about, I mean, you still do the legal work, but I guess you have a little more of the admin, you have that admin taken care of, right? Yeah, you have the admin taken care of and you also still have somebody else to supervise you. So if you're an owner of your own practice, you make the final call and mm. sometimes it could be nerve-wracking if you're uncertain with what you're you're doing, if you're a young lawyer, let's say. So it's, you, you have to, that's why you have to be diligent in reading and making sure that you're making the right decision. Okay. Um, I want to get into something that we've spoken about earlier and have, you know, discussed this with a number of I guess, legal entrepreneurs, and this is the idea of um, networking. So we all know that law students tend to be hardworking, intelligent, breed. Um, there are no doubt that these, you know, traits are necessary for um, just success in a self-guided career. But we learn, or, or I guess we hear this expression a lot, you know, soft skills or social intelligence, charisma, that how ever you want to phrase it. Um, it's the ability to successfully build relationships and navigate social environments. So how important um, do you find the skill is, I guess, not only for entrepreneurs like yourself, but just generally being a lawyer? Um, did it come easy to you? Um, and if not, how did you sort of adapt um, to that aspect? In terms of importance, I would say very. I've had a few clients tell me that, let's say they would be interviewing a few other lawyers and then they would choose me. And one of the reasons that they would choose me, let's say, is because of the personal aspect 
It depends on the client. Some clients are about the bottom dollar and they don't care. If you give them the cheapest price, they'll go with that person. A lot of clients who especially are, let's say, on the business side, this is their baby. They're starting their business mm-hmm. and they'd like to make sure that they do everything properly. So the relationship with their lawyer is very important because that's the person that helps them operate their business. And so the ones that are about the bottom dollar, there's nothing that you can do. You can be the most social person or the least social person. They just care about the money. But the ones that really care about having a long-lasting relationship, and these are the people that you would probably want. They'll have ongoing legal needs, and they'll come back to you with whatever it is, and they'll put their trust in you. And for them, if they care about the relationship, you need to be a social person in order to make that work. But again, there's personalities clash sometimes as well. You can't possibly get along with everybody, but you should have that social aspect. Um, In terms of the networking side, to be honest, I hated networking before starting my own firm. Just the idea of having to go up to strangers was terrifying and also just didn't appeal to me at all. Yes. Uh, One thing that I've learned is there's two sides to it. The first one is when you go to networking events, people are there to network. So it's not as uncomfortable because that's what everyone there is doing. So you get into that rhythm where it doesn't really matter because people are there for the exact same reason and they're there to meet people and everyone's happy to meet other people. The second side of it is to also learn how not to take it personally. Mm-hmm. I like to equate it to a person at a bar that tries to come up to ask people and start date. conversations. <laughs> yeah, and ask you for yeah. dates. And when people turn you down, you just learn not to be offended yeah. in a way. And a lot of the time, the other thing that I've learned is it's not about you. Um, I've had people, clients, potential clients that I would be talking to, and we'd finalize everything. we talk about pricing. Everything is going well. And then when it comes to them actually solidifying a retainer with you, then they just disappear. Mm-hmm. But then they'll call me 10 months later and say, hey, I'm so sorry I had a baby. And mm-hmm. so I just completely forgot about my business and just didn't have time for anything. And I'm, I'm seeing that a lot more and more. It's not about me. Some people just have circumstances and whatnot. So the not getting offended part, whether you're networking or whatever it is, it's also very circumstantial a lot of the time. So I think just going out of your shell a little bit and not really, for lack of a better word, caring what people think mm-hmm. because no one thinks anything. They're there to network and people are always happy to meet other people. Yeah, that's great because um, I know some of our viewers um, or our listeners rather, um, they might be so-called introverts by nature. Um, so, you know, even, even introverts, you know, you, you don't have any excuses. You should, uh, you can, I guess, try and make the effort or even, you know, um, if you're looking, I guess, to start a law firm, maybe even partner with someone who has that, um, extroverted, so to speak side, and maybe you can kind of complement each other. Yeah. I think it, it, like I said, it depends. Because I started the firm with a former business partner, I noticed that sometimes we would go to a networking event and then I would talk to somebody and we just didn't click. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then she would talk to that same person and she would. And so sometimes it just depends on your personality and and, and that's why you attract the clients that are most like you. You don't need to get every single person to do anything Mm -hmm. for you. And the other side is to go into networking without any expectations. Now I find that I'm not going to network to find clients. I'm networking to find other people that are in the same industry as me and that are possibly 
potential referrals for future clients and, and those relationships take time. You have to, it's not just to network, it's to go for coffees afterwards and to follow up and to, sometimes you have to do favors. I have you know, realtors that I work with and I notarize their documents for them and their family for free as just um, keeping that relationship going. So it's not just networking, it's actually just building long lasting relationships with people in, in whatever professional way that you can. Yeah. Uh, from the introvert side, you can always have a conversation just not to be afraid. Mm -hmm. uh, when I worked for my old law firm, I went to a networking event with my supervisor at that time, and his point was, if you go to a networking event, make it a goal to, let's say, talk to at least three people. And if you've done that, then you can feel good about yourself mm -hmm. that you've at least done that. And I've stuck with that, actually, when starting my own firm, I have tried to say that, okay, I'm going to talk to three people, but I find that you talk to more. I'll come home with 10, 15 business cards, just depending on how the night goes or wherever it is that you are. So practice is probably the biggest aspect of networking and then also learning not to worry about it as much. It's not, it, yeah. if this networking event didn't work out, you'll go to the next one and it'll be that much better. Yeah. It also seems like you kind of build yourself and you build yourself, I guess, when you're sole practice lawyer or you have your own firm you're kind of this one person army right like you you do the technical side which is a law but you also do sort of the admin and there might be management and there might be um you know networking sales mm -hmm. so um i guess yeah there's a the multifaceted aspect that you know lawyer uh, law students might want to um think about as they're going through law school you know maybe it's not all about just getting the highest grades although that might be important um, given their goals it might be also you know creating that well-rounded um, individual mm -hmm. yeah exactly I think the social skills are a big part of it you're, you're selling yourself essentially so you have to know how to also be a salesperson and a mm -hmm. business person and a lawyer on top of that and the what you're seeing is people are turning to you a little bit more, not just for the legal side. So you have to have a broader mind in order to be able to help your clients. Great. So you've talked about the challenges of working for yourself. Um, I guess the obstacles. Now let's get into the rewards. What's your favorite part about working for yourself? And what's your favorite part of, you know, your work in general? Sure. Uh, well, I think the best part is I started the firm in a partnership and now I'm on my own and I've had, uh, I was in a partnership for a year and then I'm on my own for a year. So I'd like to say that I really enjoy being on my own much more than let's say working in a partnership and mm -hmm. part of it is you're, everything runs through you. You can make decisions faster. You don't need to run anything by anyone. You're, you make the ultimate decisions and you get to make them how you'd like to. So having that sense of control is very nice. Um, the other side of it, it's you're on your own time and schedule there's times where I've come home at 9 p.m. from even just being with my friends and then I mm. can sit at my desk and finish my work there is no strict schedule like FaceTime I guess yeah exactly I could do work whenever I'd like to wherever I'd like to um, if I don't have to go downtown for to my office for meetings I could work from home and sit in my pajamas at my desk mm -hmm. and nobody's there to yeah. tell me otherwise so it's really nice to have that much control and flexibility I can't say that I work less I work more than I worked when I worked for somebody else. But at a very minimum, I get to set my time and the schedule and how I do things. Great. So 
I want to get into some, I guess, practice specific questions. Um, so your practice involves intellectual property, right, for entrepreneurs. And we have a lot of students at Osgood and I'm sure at other Canadian law schools who are interested in this field. Um, I guess generally, do you see any developments in the field? Um, I, I know you're, you have a, like an innovative practice. What advice would you give? I guess the first question is, do you see, you know, what developments do you see in the field? And maybe the second would be, what advice would you give to students who part, you know, specifically want to practice IP law? In terms of developments, um, I'm seeing, depending on what stage a business is at, the businesses don't necessarily want to right away invest into intellectual property if we're thinking from the startup side. The ones that do invest in intellectual property are the more established businesses with more funds. I think so the thing that I'm seeing is intellectual property is not always a priority for very young businesses. It just depends on what types of businesses you'd like to work with. Um, the other side is there is certain protections that you can get for intellectual property without necessarily registering for intellectual property rights and I'm seeing people take advantage of that a little bit more than if they're actually applying for registered intellectual property rights whether it's trademarks, patents, whatever it is that they're doing. In terms of advice, I think general advice for anyone that's a young lawyer, I've noticed that it's not very easy in our world and at this time to move between areas of practice. So if you think you'd like to practice intellectual property law, then I think it's very important to be really sure that that's what you'd like. And I've seen even, like I said, I always took business law courses, I've always worked as a business lawyer, but because I worked for a firm that had an environmental aspect, even I started getting pigeonholed as an environmental lawyer, but I've never mm -hmm. practiced environmental law. I have no idea how to do mm -hmm. a lot of the environmental stuff, but I know exactly how to do the business side. So it's very easy as a young lawyer to get pigeonholed. So that would be one advice is for anyone that wants to go into intellectual property, just really make sure that you've covered your bases and that's what you'd like to do. Um, and I, just because I have also seen, for example, I know somebody that was in intellectual property litigation, and now intellectual property litigation is not as hot of a topic mm -hmm. for lawyers. And now this individual had to go off on their own and start their own practice, but all they know is intellectual property litigations. They don't have as much experience in broader business, corporate law, or commercial law. So, okay. um, I think just before specializing, just make sure that you've really decided on that, that that's the area that you'd like to practice in. And I guess what are some things you could do to, I mean, give yourself the best grasp of what you want, what sort of field you want to practice. Do you think a lot of it's just, you know, try and get as much experience in that field in law school, talk to people in the industry? It's a tough balance because you also want to seem like you are specialized when you're applying for mm. jobs, right? If you're applying for an articling job or even an associate, the law firms don't want to see you take criminal law, family law, business law, tax law, intellectual property law. They'd like to see some sort of streamlined process. So it could be if, let's say, you enjoy solicitor type work, 
then you could still take business and tax and intellectual property and they're part of the same family. Or if you want to do litigation, you could do litigation with respect to particular areas of law. So in, in terms of law school, yes, exposure is great. Talking to other lawyers is great. Um, and then depending on what area you'd like to practice in, working for a firm that might expose you to broader areas of law. But it, it, sometimes it's tough to achieve, right? Family law firms specialize in family law and you wouldn't necessarily get mm. a more well-rounded experience in, in business or criminal with them. Right. So some, at some point in time, you do have to specialize. It's tough because law firms want to see that you've dedicated your life to yeah. that area of law. But it's also very difficult to pick what area of law you'd like to practice without having practiced in it. Right. So some of our clients, I guess, are, or some of your clients, rather, are entrepreneurs in the uh, clean tech industry. So, I mean, that was kind of a new thing for me. Um, I'm not too familiar with it, <clears throat> but I'm sure, you know, we have a lot of, we have on, um, students who are interested in, I guess, environmental law and kind of that corporate social responsibility aspect of that. Um, so what is clean tech and how does it cross into your practice? Well, a lot of my clients are startups. The startups tend to be in the hot areas mm -hmm. of business, whatever it is. So there's a lot of tech companies and then of course the environmental stuff is very hot right now as well. So clean tech is essentially technology that deals with the environment. Um, it's tough to tell you specifically. I could give you an example, and then, but sure. each one is different because it's, it just depends on what it is that they're doing. I worked with a company that came up with a new way of vermicomposting. For those who don't know what vermicomposting is, it basically means you have a, a pot of some sort with soil in it and it has red worms in it and you throw compost in it and the worms turn the compost into fertilizer, which the vermicomposting con context is not new, but um, I had a client that basically came up with a new way of putting that together. So they had a box that you put the soil and the worms into and the box is sealed, but it constantly measures the pH level of the soil. And then it'll tell you add bananas or add citrus so that you're constantly balancing the pH levels of the soil. And then you get the best fertilizer you possibly can because the technology monitors exactly what you need to include in the soil to get mm. the best fertilizer. So it's kind of this, I guess, a device to help people who are producing essentially fertilizer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's environmental in a sense that you have everything in it. You're dealing with vermicompost, mm -hmm. you have a compost, which then you're getting into some environmental regulations because you're managing waste. Essentially, mm -hmm. compost is still considered waste, um, but it's innovative and there's technology mm -hmm. in it. And the whole point is to be environmentally friendly and clean. Very cool. Um, so this is, I guess, we're on that topic of technology. Um, We've had past listeners, on, uh, past guests on the show talking about, you know, technology and how it's changing the practice of law. So I guess we definitely know that legal, legal tech, if you, if you will, is changing the practice of law. I mean, what changes have you witnessed in your practice and what changes do you think lie in store for new graduates? Um. I have a two-sided answer to that. Okay. The first one is it depends on what area of law you're in. So for example, I have 
done real estate transactions as well. And the real estate business is not going anywhere from the mm. tech side. We still have to use fax and we still exchange money by bank drafts instead of wires when it could be much easier and easily tracked and just would make our life so much easier to use wires and to actually not have to rely on fax and hard copies of all of the documents. But that business is not changing and part of it is because the lawyers practicing in it are very resistant to change. Mm. Um, which is problematic, but at the same time, there's so much pressure on the real estate side to close on a transaction that you just have to do things the way that they're done so that you're not delaying closing for your client, even if it makes sense to do it in a more technologically advanced way. So the technology advancement really depends on your area of law. And I would say that at least having practiced both business and real estate, real estate is not really evolving. It's just staying the same. And we're using archaic technology to do something that we could do better. On the business side, it's not just the way that you do practice, but it's the way that your clients want to do business with you. So a lot of the time my clients will, if I'll ask them to send me something, they'll share their Dropbox links with me and they'll you know, try to use more technology and certain clients I have to talk to via Slack. Mm. Uh, and I have to be part of their members and some clients I have that will do meetings and phone calls with me only through WebEx and so you have to, wow. if, yeah. it, if each client has their own different needs in a way and so you kind of have to adjust to that in a way so I have mm. way too many apps on my phone trying to <laughs> accommodate everyone's way of communication mm. so it's not just about me and how I like to do business but it's also how my clients like to do business with me. Um, but, and, and technology, in a way, is great. There's, I'm, I'm noticing a lot more reliance on email, and, and like I said, money goes through our accounts all the time, and so unless you're in real estate, generally using email money transfers and wires and all of that is much better than going through paper and, and having checks and all of that in place. Um, in terms of innovative software, actually I have a client that has a business in AI and his mm. whole company job is he has an algorithm to teach a machine how to do data analysis and what he did is I actually drafted a contract for him for an unrelated matter and he took my contract and he tried to apply his software to it to try to interpret the contract or at least read it the way that I would and so he met with me and he said, you know, if, if you were reading this provision, what would be the risks that you're looking for versus how would you advise your client on this provision and this provision mm. and what would you say? And so he was essentially trying to come up with a way of getting me out <laughs> so that he can have a computer read a contract and, and tell a person about the risks rather than me having to read it and then explain it to my clients, which I have to do a lot for clients when they're signing documents. So. Uh, that's where the innovation side comes in for, for the legal world. The innovation is coming from startups to try to take over some of our work, which is not necessarily bad in a sense. I do see software more applied actually in, in real estate that, that plugs in relevant information and then comes up with documents that have been auto-populated by a machine, but you still need a lawyer to look over it and supervise and make sure that it, the machine did it properly. So I'm seeing more innovation and technology to try to take over some of the tasks that we do, but at the same time, you still need our high level of supervision mm -hmm. to maybe 
that's where the technological innovation is coming from. You're seeing more documents being able to be pre-populated based on information that you put in. There is software now that could analyze law, that could possibly analyze contracts, but you still need that high-level understanding of the law. You still need a human to supervise the machine, at least for now. Great. Um, so, in closing off, um, a lot of you know what our law students want to I guess even young lawyers want to, or those articling or just, you know, graduating, um, whether they're interested in entrepreneurship or or not, I guess everybody wants to know how they can sell themselves better and essentially for, you know, grads make ourselves more marketable in this uh, changing legal landscape. Um, so we've, I mean, we've talked a bit about networking. Is, is there any you know anything else that you'd recommend to our uh, to our listeners to just you know um, maybe finding helping them find a fulfilling uh, legal career and um, selling themselves one thing that I think has helped me other than networking to get clients is to try to get involved in speaking and mentoring opportunities if there are any um, so pairing with organizations or with other people to do seminars, to do workshops, to do things like that. And usually, whoever is in the audience, you might get one or two people as a client from that. Mm. Um, and the other side is sometimes you just never know what opportunities there are to network. I've gone to networking events where 500 people showed up and nothing came of it. And I've gone to just a meetup where eight people showed up and two of them are my clients. Mm. And so just being open to opportunities, that's why I say don't go in with expectations. Just go right. in with a mentality of, oh, I'm just going to you know, have some appetizers and meet some people while I'm here and mm. then see where where that takes you. But I think other than networking, the other side of it is just presenting yourself as an expert in the field and a lot of the time that comes with speaking, mentoring, writing, anything like that just to make sure that people really see that you know what you're talking about. Okay and last thing just about mentorship. Um, a lot of the times you know finding a great mentor is often you know the cornerstone of success. So uh, did you have you know any direct mentors or maybe indirect mentors who um, sort of helped you along during your career or maybe kind of set you on certain roads or was it a lot of you know kind of this self uh, you know you had to kind of do a lot of it which I'm sure you have had to do a lot yourself but you know any advice for finding mentors in this industry and you know um, getting that sort of guidance I don't have a mentor. Um, mm. Haven't had one. I don't have any family connections with other lawyers or anything like that. Um, and yeah, that's. I mean, a lot of. Um, so sort of what why I asked as well as you know a lot of our law students don't have like myself. I don't have any family ties to the profession. Um, so maybe you can yeah continue to speak a little about you know well, what if you don't have these family ties? How can you find those? Um, that help, that support? Mm -hmm. I think it depends on what you're looking for. So for me, I don't have a mentor that advises me on my career or the law firm or anything like that. If I ever have a legal question that maybe I'd like to run past somebody, it would, I do have enough people on my roster, let's say, mm -hmm. to be able to ask that question. 
not necessarily classmates of mine, but actually other lawyers that I've met through various transactions or various networking events and whatnot. And so depending on the issue, I have a list of people I can call and ask. And sometimes it could be, it feels a little strange, but I'll give you an example. I had something very, very, very unique happen to me on a real estate transaction. And I've called a few lawyers that I know that practice in real estate and they said they've never, this has never happened. They have no idea how to even handle a situation like that. And so I actually called a small town practitioner that was on the opposing side of me in another transaction, but he just seemed like he was a very kind, retiring man that Mm. has been around for a very long time. And I just thought I'll ask him a question. And he was actually very generous with his time. And because he's been in the business for 50 years or so, the answer was a lot simpler to give than anyone that's, let's say, in my age group and that has practiced in real estate or business, whatever it is. And so it feels a little strange to have to call a lawyer that you've dealt with on an opposing side of a transaction. But one thing that I found is that people are very willing to help, um, especially, and, and that's why it's good to be nice to a opposing counsel and it's mm. good to be nice to other lawyers. So I think if you don't have a mentor, there is somehow I think law school creates that rivalry between other lawyers mm-hmm. where I actually find it to be the other way around. Probably about a third of my business comes from other lawyers as referrals, but also to have that list of lawyers that I can call if something happens and I have other lawyers that will call me and say, hey, do you have a precedent for this or do you have a template for that? And I share that with them, but then I can also call them when things happen and and I have a question for them. So if you don't have a mentor, at a very minimum, be nice to other lawyers so that you can have a cohort of colleagues that you could always turn to to ask questions. Yeah, I find, um, I guess in school, we're supposed to be very competitive, competing against each other, but that's not really how it is in the real world, right? Like you won't it seems like you've got to work together a lot and mm-hmm. sort of in this, I mean, it's a small community too, right? So I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. And I have uh, people that I bounce ideas off of that they're lawyers and we're in direct competition with each other. We practice exactly wow. what the other person practices, but we're great friends. We mm-hmm. refer conflict client to each other and we'll share precedence if we need to. And, and it works well. I have other lawyers that, let's say they practice at a firm that does business law, which is what I do as well, but they don't have a real estate practice and I don't have a litigation practice. So if anyone comes to me for litigation, I refer it to them. If anyone comes to them for real estate, they'll refer it to me. And we're very diligent in not stealing the business clients from each other because- A symbiotic relationship. (laughs) Yeah, which is, I think that's, that's great. So one thing that I found is if, because I don't have a mentor, having other lawyers in your life is very, very helpful and practical. But also not being afraid to ask for help if you need it. Well, Alex, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Legal Entrepreneurs Podcast. You can find out more about Alex and her work on Twitter and the Insight Legal website. If you enjoyed the podcast and got something out of it, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn. Please share the show with a friend or colleague who you think would get something out of it. We also welcome questions that you would like asked of our guests at leo.osgood at gmail.com. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Tony Domino telling you to dare to roar.